All right, episode 58 with John Cowan, fantastic singer, bass player. He's currently touring with the Doobie Brothers, but of course was the lead singer and bass player for Newgrass Revival, one of my favorite bands of all time. Uh, we had a great conversation. We had a couple of disconnects uh, during the Zoom conversation because of uh, funky Wi-Fi, but we made it work and we had a great conversation. So I hope you enjoy this one a lot. Uh, make sure you check out sponsors, Morning Buzz Coffee Company is based out of Hamilton, Ontario. Uh, they are a small batch coffee company. They specialize in fair trade organic coffees and just did a podcast with the owners. So check that out uh, on the episode before this one. Also, my grandfather's fiddle is a one of a kind custom t-shirts. And uh, just go to their website, mygrandfathersfiddle.com and check out all the cool things they do. And Christmas coming up, this would be an awesome Christmas present. Uh, so make sure you check that out. Also, Music City Canada would be great for your Christmas presents as well. Uh, great uh, non-one-stop music shop based out of London, Ontario. As mentioned before, I buy a lot of equipment from them, and Ryan is the owner there, and they look after you very well. MusicCityCanada.com. All right, this is John Cowan. Uh, love this guy and had a fun conversation, as we mentioned. And uh, also, if you listen to on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. You get all the uh, upcoming episodes, some great guests coming up. Also on iTunes and all your favorite podcast listening um, platforms. And uh, just subscribe and make sure you leave a comment and uh, make sure you listen to all the upcoming stuff. All right. This is Mr. John Cowan. Okay, we're here uh, with John Cowan, and it's so awesome to have you on the podcast. I'm a, a big fan, uh, love your singing, love your bass playing, and uh, I could listen to you 24 hours a day. It's one of those uh, those voices that I just always love, uh, and it's awesome to have you here. Uh, and you're in, are you in Nashville now? Yeah, we live in the Nashville area. We actually live uh, just almost an hour south in a little town called Columbia. Oh, good. Just due south. So it looks like you are you in like a recording space of your own, or? Yeah, this is my music room. It looks um, great. I do I do not have a uh, recording system. No, you don't. I'm digitally challenged, as they say. Well, that's all right. That's a good place to be sometimes. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so I. I remember seeing you for the first time, uh, and I'm trying to remember when it could have been, and I'm pretty sure it was probably the early 80s with New Grass Revival in Tampa at the fairgrounds there. And I don't know why I remember exactly where that was, but um, I was down there on vacation, and my brother and I uh, went to see you perform, and it was life-changing how great that show was. And I always walked away from that going, I swear there's a drummer there, but there was no drummer. <laughs> that, was, that was Sam Bush. He, he's the Steve Gadd of the mandolin. He is, isn't he? And I think I, if I remember this correctly, you, you may have a different remembrance, but I think that was a gig that we played in some kind of crazy outdoor warehouse. And, yeah, it was kind of... And a, we opened for Tanya Tucker. Yes, that Is was that correct. Game. Yes, that which was, I can't believe I remember, but you remember yeah. it more than I do. <laughs> I forgot about the Tanya Tucker part. <laughs> I just remember it was outside. It was kind of a place that you think to yourself, "They're going to put a concert on here." Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, 
it wasn't a regular music venue. No, it wasn't. I remember that. It was Oh, it was a state fairgrounds. Yes, it was a kind of a flat floor yeah. and not yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. That was good. Anyways, Darren, sorry. <laughs> I digress. <laughs> no problem. So, how are things now um with everything with we're all kind of locked down with COVID and not playing as much as we used to? How are you faring with all that stuff going on now? Well, I I I gathered a bunch of people up in March, local musicians. Yeah. My friend Andre is on who plays fiddle and sings like an angel. She's worked with James Taylor for about, I think, close to 20 years. And we've been friends forever. She's younger than I am. They're all younger than I am. And <clears throat> Matt Menefee, who plays banjo, who's a phenomenal. He's like Bela, phenomenal. Yeah. And then this young guitarist named Seth Taylor, he's from North Carolina, and he's a, he's the young gun. And another gentleman, another younger guy from North Carolina, also named Ashby Frank, who plays and sings. sings the singing in this band is stunning. And we called it the Herculeons. Um, and we're still doing shows. we got one coming up on the 23rd. So we've just been doing Facebook Live shows. Yeah. We had a couple actual gigs booked one here in Nashville and one in North Carolina. And like one was supposed to be the first of November and the other one was supposed to be yesterday. We ended up canceling both of them because of, uh, in our part of the country is COVID is just going crazy. Yeah. So that, that's, that, that's a long answer to your questions. Um, but I have been, you know, so we've been staying really busy. And actually, this band that we have now, we're going to make a record in January. So awesome. it's, a, it's truly a band record. It's, it's not a John Callen record with, set, with Sidemen. Yeah. So. Yeah, all great players there for sure. I've, I've caught you guys on, on Facebook a few times, and it's, it's, uh, it's really cool. And you're just kind of sitting around um, and just playing. It's, it's fabulous to watch. It's kind of nice. You know, it's like as long as I've been doing this kind of music, um, not, not the Doobie Brothers stuff, but um, this kind of roots, bluegrass, newgrass music that I do, we've always sat on porch somewhere and rehearsed. So now we're just doing it on Zoom. Yeah. It really feels the same. In fact, there's a picture of uh, Newgrass Revival, the inside cover of one of our records. It's just us sitting on a porch playing. So. Awesome. Sam, Cur- Sam Cur- Courtney and Curtis and I. Yeah. Anyways. So let's take a little deeper dive and, and kind of let the audience and everyone know kind of how you got started. You you kind of grew up in Ohio. Is that where you? you I did. Out yeah. in a little, turn called, little town called Minerva, which is a suburb of, Cle- of Cleveland. Yeah. And when did you actually start? Did you start singing first or playing bass first? What, was, what came first? Singing in the church. Was it? Yeah. Yep. It was a non-denominational Protestant church. Um, and so I can remember singing it as far back as I can remember. Literally, I can remember singing in church and in choir. And then once the Beatles hit, it was all over. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> I was 10 when they came out. Yeah. And so that was, for a lot of people, Beatles were pretty life-changing. Um I always say they saved my life, actually. Really? And well, yeah, because I I was um, I was sexually abused at the age of eight. 
And when you're that age and, and something like that happens to you repeatedly, I mean, you can imagine uh, because you're, you're at a pre-sexual age. Yeah. So you don't know, you don't have any understanding and it was very violent and it went on and, um, and then it stopped. But then, you know, I was just, that really, um, it's not post-traumatic stress, it's traumatic stress. And, yeah. you know, I was just a sweet little eight, eight-year-old guy wearing cowboy shirts. And the next thing I know, my world is completely shattered. And I don't, I had no way to even grasp with that. And I couldn't talk to anybody about it. Um, but I did love music. I just loved music. My brother played Kinks and Trio records when I was four or five. And then... I remember the Elvis part of it all because Elvis in 57, so I would have been four years old. So there was a lot of music happening. And through the wounding that was going on with me that I didn't understand, I was gravitating towards music. Yeah. And so when I was 10, the reason I said that about the Beatles, it just gave me this, when they came along, there was something about the magic of who they were, their personalities. And then, of course, their music. And I really just feel like it, it saved my life. Honestly, I feel that way. It almost feels like there will never be another Beatles. I mean, it's a time, it's an era, it's, yeah. it's everything. Um, I mean, it'll be some, I, I think each generation has their version. I think yeah. like for my kids, it's Radiohead. Oh, yeah. My kids grew up on the Beatles and Hendrix, and they love that stuff. But their Beatles are, is Radiohead. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny how that is true. How it's a generational thing, and and that really, I've read several times. They say you you listen to music, new music, until you get to your early thirties, mm-hmm. and then from then on, you just carry that set of music with you for the rest of your life. You listen to new stuff, but it really kind of stops around thirty. Yeah, uh, I think it's some kind of imprinting. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty interesting. So when when did the bass come along? What what made you gravitate to bass? I was living in this little, we, we had moved, um, we moved from Ohio when I was three. I mean, we moved to a different spot of Ohio. I should, sorry to say, uh, sorry about that. Um, and so the bass came into it. I was living in a little neighborhood. Our family was my sister and I, my mom and dad, my two older brothers are already out of the house. Um, and uh, God, I completely forgot what I was talking about because I'm going on so much. That's right. Uh, bass. When did the bass come in? Oh. <laughs> when did it come in? That's a good question. So we, I joined a little neighborhood band in Louisville, Kentucky, where I lived. And it was one of those things where one guy had an amp and a guitar and he was sitting on his front porch one day and I was obsessed with music and I walked down the street and I was like, what are you doing? Who's that? What is that? I mean, I knew it was a guitar, but it's like, I didn't, I never had met anybody that had one. So we started hanging out every day and then we realized that another guy further down in the neighborhood played drums and he had a set of drums. And so I was nominated to play the bass. And that's how I got the, into the bass. <laughs> it's like, okay, we got drums and guitar. We need somebody to play bass. So did you get a, uh, a teacher or did you just pick it up and learn it on your own? I had started taking guitar lessons. Um, so I, I, I had the rudimentary elementary chords down. Um, 
And then it was really, literally, it was like, you play bass. Okay. <laughs> so <laughs> I drug my dad to the local Roses, which is kind of like a Target store. Somebody told me they still have them in the U.S. But anyways, and he bought me a little uh, a copy of a Hofner bass called the Univox bass. Yeah. It was a Hofner copy. Anyways, and that was it. That's how I started. That must have been cool to get that, being a Beatles fan and having a Hoffer looking bass. That would have been pretty cool. I have, a pic- I have a picture of it here. Let me show it to you. Yeah. It's pretty funny. I hope you'll be able to see this. I don't know. All right, tell me if you can see this or not. Sorry. No, it's all right. I'd love to see it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Tilt it oh, back. That's me. Tilt the uh, top of it back. Oh, there you go. Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> that is me. I look like I'm seven, but I'm actually 14. Were you? Yeah. And did you find it easy to to just kind of pick up and get going with it? Or is it a difficult thing at first? No, I think I did my 10,000 hours, to be honest. Yeah. I can remember. I mean, music at that time, everywhere, Canada, U.S., was, it was it's kind of like the BBC has remained over the years, which is, you just heard everything. I mean, and it was AM radio. So, I mean, in those years when I was learning how to play, um, you know, we had all of Motown in rotation all the time. Yeah. Beatles, British Invasion. You know, Buck Owens was on the radio, Charlie Rich, Ray Charles, Aretha Franklin. It was just such a deep, lush time for creativity. And I remember buying Knock on Wood by Eddie Floyd. Oh, yeah. Which was on stacks. Because if you remember, the, the, label, the label had fingers clicking like this on it. It was a light blue yeah. label. Anyways, but I bought that record and I, I was down in my basement playing it over and over and over and over again, trying to learn. And I was pretty much a beginner. So I'm sitting there and trying to learn Duck Dunn's bass part, playing it over and over. And I finally, you know, I think I got close. But anyways. Yeah, and probably back in those days, um, Obviously, you don't have a computer, and you weren't able to slow down a part or or no. play it back. And I yeah. know I remember when I was learning to play uh, a couple of different instruments. You know, you have put the record needle down, and um, I, I gravitated to. Uh, uh, I played fiddle mainly, mm-hmm. uh, but a couple of instruments later, I picked up sax, which was kind of a bizarre cluster of where I came from. <laughs> How'd you get from one to the other? I don't know, but. I had a couple of Boots Randolph uh, records. And so the first song I tried to learn was the Yakety Sax, which was not yep. an easy song to learn when you're just playing the sax. But I'd sit no, there for no. hours putting that needle down and trying to pick up the first, you know, couple measures and listen and drop it. And I'm thinking, wow, this, you know, you just forever, you got really good at dropping the needle right where you wanted it to go. But um, it the was thing, the, dedication. The thing about, yeah, the thing about those records that, 
And those were made here in Nashville. Yeah. Um, but the guys that were the A crew, uh, the A team back in those days were actually amazing musicians. You know, anyways, it, Floyd Kramer would have been on that and Bob Moore, I'm sure, was playing the bass on it. And uh, who knows? When when did you gravitate from playing with the kids down the street and then the neighborhood to uh, playing a real gig? Well, we kind of, our band kind of uh, got bigger. We got some more, you know, it was one of those things where um, there were other musicians in our high school. Yeah. And so um, we found a, a, another guy in my neighborhood that was really a great drummer. Um, and he was in the marching band. Um, and then another, another young guy in our same age group, which we were sophomores in high school at that time, who played guitar and sang really well. And so we now had a five-piece band. It was awesome. And we were really good. Just coincidentally, we, all, we had really good singing. Everybody could sing really well. Awesome. Um, our playing probably wasn't as good as our singing yet, but we're working on it. Did you uh, have any recordings from those days? No, really? no. Um, but we played, you know, we played people's parties at their houses in their basements. And uh, we did like Battle of the Bands. Yeah. And there was a couple, co there was a couple coffee houses that you could play at in this suburban area where I lived of Louisville. So we actually did play, and it was kind of cute. You know, it's like we bought a Sure Vocal Master PA. Remember the two yep. columns? And that was like a big deal. We all worked and chipped in. And then our parents, our moms made us all Nehru sh shirts to match. <laughs> they got out their little Butterick patterns. And, yeah. and I remember my dad, we had a station wagon. My dad um, built a little lighting system for us. It was just two boxes with three lights, three colored floodlights in each one. Yeah. <laughs> red, blue, and yellow or something, you know, red, blue, and green. And he would drive us uh, to our gigs. It was really pretty cool. My dad did a similar thing. He bought basically kind of three Christmas-type lights mounted mm -hmm. on a piece of plywood, and it had, each of them had a switch, but one gig gets <laughs> caught on fire. <laughs> I, I still remember they were, they were so bright, but it, I just remember the first time that we turned those things on, it just felt like I've made it. Yeah, <laughs> we have our we have our own lights, and to be, to have that bright light in your face, you know, there's something about that feeling that's part of this whole deal that that never goes away. It's, I guess it's like grease paint for actors, you know. Exactly. So, what about um, schooling? Like, you, did you uh, in high school? What were you were you thinking? That's what you wanted to be was a musician, or did you have any other ambitions? Well, it's funny because I had grown up in. Cleveland and then we moved to Pittsburgh so and my dad and my brothers were huge football fans uh, National Football League so I got really uh, entrenched in that whole culture yeah and I played little league baseball I played little league football but what I realized quickly um, was that I was that I could sing and play at a pretty high level but I would, but when it came to sports, as much as I love sports, and I had decent eye, 
eye-to-hand coordination. But I would sit on the bench in the games. So it's like, (laughs) and when I sang and played, it was like, oh, I'm really, I'm pretty good at this stuff. And people would say, oh, you really sing good. And so that was a lot better that made the choice easy. Do I want to sit on the bench during the game and watch everybody else? Yeah. Or do I want to be, you know. A rock star. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So that's when I decided in my uh, junior year of high school, I just, uh, I quit all the sports stuff and just focused with our little band on having a band. Yeah. And I'd sit in class all day long. I'm sure I had ADD, ADHD, whatever, and just draw. I'd take a little ruler with me and I would draw a stage and I would draw the amplifiers and I would draw the microphones. Awesome. It was just crazy. You're making your own stage plots at a young age. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so out of high school, um, where did you find yourself? Did you did you go post-secondary education or did you just stick with it? I went to one year of college. It's interesting. You know, my parents had really supported us during high school with the music thing. But when I graduated from high school, they were like, okay, now you need to get serious. You need to find something to do for the rest of your life. Yeah which I wasn't happy at all about. But I agreed to go to one year of college, or I agreed to go to college. And um, I always tell people that college is where I confused uh, GPA with THC. (laughs) (laughs) So what did I do when I got to college? I found a bunch of people like me that were musicians and smoked marijuana, and that was it. That's all I wanted to do was play music, so... Yeah, it makes sense. It's it's funny now would you when you're older, you think about your parents giving you that advice. It's still really great advice being in the music industry for a long time, but you got to follow you know your dreams and what you really really want to do. Um uh, Well, that's the thing that I thought was um counterintuitive about it. It's like as you grow up, they say, "Be the best you can be and follow your dreams." And then when you say, okay, I want to follow my dreams, they're like, well, not so much. Yeah, not, not that dream. <laughs> yeah, it's like, well, what is it? Yeah. But I've, I've always been proud of myself that I was just stuck to, you know, I knew what I wanted to do when I was 14. Yeah. And I was gifted enough at it that I was, I've always been able to make a living at it. But I've always been rather, I don't like to use the word pride. I don't know what the right word would be. I guess maybe pride. I'm proud of myself that I against all odds and you know this yourself um you know this is one of the hardest ways in the world to make a living yeah and it's not based on meritocracy yeah it's like we all know people that are just geniuses of musicians that never got anywhere yeah there's a lot of those yeah where did you find yourself once you you finished a year of college and decided to do uh uh, not go back to college. <laughs> was it? I had, of- well, the same guys that I had been in a band in high school, like in my senior year of high school, my family, my dad took a job. We moved a lot when I was a kid because he wasn't in the military, but he was in the transportation business. But anyway, so we moved in my senior year of high school to Evansville, Indiana. And I went to one year of school at Indiana State University, Evansville. And at the end of that year, I'd been in contact with all my buddies this whole time. Um, I moved back to Louisville by myself. Uh, that was my first, you know, move away from home at 18. Yeah. Maybe I was 19. 
moved back to Louisville or Louisville, as some people would call it, Kentucky, and started playing in a band and working in a car wash to support myself. Um, and that would have been 72. And I was living in Louisville, working in a car wash, playing in bands. Um, I was doing all sorts of music, playing in a big old horn band with a Al Green-like singer. And then I had my own band. <laughs> we were so obsessed with Yes that we called the band You. <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> so it was our, you know, yeah. it was our attempt to be a prog rock band. Yeah. Um, and it, and then I got a call f- uh, two years later from Sam Bush to see to ask if I'd want to come down to uh, Western Kentucky to audition for the band, the New Grass Revival, and I did. So, how did you have that connection with with Sam uh, at that point? Well, I was part of the rock and roll scene in Louisville. And there was a, a guy that I'd met from Bowling Green who had this band called Buster Brown. And they were really good. And he was a phenomenal electric guitar player. Um, and we just became friends. And he had grown up with Sam. Sam uh, was still living down in Western Kentucky near Bowling Green. Yeah. And this is where Ken Smith, our friend, was from. And the bass player that the Newgrass Revival had at that time decided to quit. He was actually a banjo player. Oh, yeah. Um, his name was Butch Robbins, and he quit the band. And so I guess Sam was asking our friend Ken. He actually asked Ken if he wanted to play bass in the band. And Ken was like, Sam, I'm an electric guitar player. <laughs> Why don't you get a real bass player once and for all? Mm-hmm. And Sam was like, well, okay, you know anybody? And he was like, yeah, I know this kid here in Louisville, and he plays and sings his ass off and you should you should call him up so he gave him my number so i got a call out of the blue from sam asking um if i would want to come audition for their band yeah and did you know did he explain the style of music and everything about that or are you just kind of going and i had seen them once yeah the young woman i was dating at the time who later became my wife had drugged me down to see these guys play in, in downtown Louisville and said, you got to come hear this band. They're so cool. They're like, they play bluegrass instruments, but they do Jerry Lee Lewis songs and Leon Russell songs. And I was like, oh, I don't want to see bluegrass. Yeah. She's like, no, they're really good. You, you would really like it. You should come on, let's go. So I went and saw them and I was duly impressed. They even had a drummer at the time. Yeah. I mean, there's these, four long-haired guys playing banjos and mandolins and fiddles and just totally, um, you know, just slamming it. Yeah. So I was impressed. I was like, well, this is weird. I'll never, because I didn't, strangely enough, growing up in, in Indiana and Kentucky and Ohio, I didn't really know what bluegrass was. Yeah. So, and I didn't really see bluegrass that night either. I saw the Newgrass Revival. Yeah. So, so what was that audition like? Um, it was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Courtney Johnson and his wife Hazel lived in this little little house in out in the middle of the country, and um, it was I don't know probably twenty miles off the interstate. Uh, anyway, so I went and I met Sam and Courtney at a gas station, 
And then we, I followed them to Courtney's house. But what's kind of interesting about it is when I pulled up, Courtney Johnson, who is the banjo player, he was the oldest member of the band. He, was, he had this big beard and this long red hair, and he had a cat hat on, <laughs> caterpillar hat on, yeah. and a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. And he was driving this, like, muscle car. It was like a 66 Super Sport Chevelle or something. And it had, you know, it had big tires on it and chrome reverse wheels. It was like, blah, 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 blah. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> I said, here I go, Thunder Road. <laughs> and I went over to Courtney's house and I got my bass out. And I plugged in and I was tuning it up and I was, pl- I was playing, you know, as you doodled around when you're, you first turn your instrument on. Yeah. And apparently the other four of them were in the kitchen, like pinching each other. And they were all giddy because it was like, this guy can really play. And, and they said, they told me later that they already knew before we sat down to play that I was going to be able to do it. Oh yeah. So that's what happened. So that, oh, so we had a drummer at that time. And the first day I was there, we, we were, they asked if I wanted to be in the band. I said, sure. So we lit up some fatties and spent the whole afternoon playing music. Yeah. And uh, I went to bed, and the next morning I got up, and the drummer's car is packed, and he's on the front porch crying. And I'm like, what's going on? And they said, oh, come here, let us, let us talk to you. So we went in another room, and they said, well, we fired him because we don't need him anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I felt terrible, <laughs> but I was like, okay, you're the boss or whatever. Here yeah. we go. Well, yeah. Especially with Sam and the band and all that. I mean, yeah, I'm sure it was great with the drummer, but I could see their we point. Just, yeah. We didn't need him. Yeah. Yeah. So what was your first gig with, um, with new grass revival? Do you remember? There was a couple places that we played that we could get to. Um, we played in uh, Bowling Green. Oh yeah. And we also played this little. We played this little club in Louisville. Um, and that was our, my first gig. We kind of at that time the band had reformed, so to speak. So we were starting from scratch with me. It was me and Courtney, Courtney Johnson and Curtis yeah. Birch and Sam. Um, so we were starting over literally. And were you still doing that same type of style, just kind of doing more alternative bluegrass? Um, yeah, they'd already established that yeah. part of the, of the yeah. band. I mean, <clears throat> yeah. And so we just kept, and Sam was very prolific as a songwriter at that time, really all through up until when Pat and Bela joined the band. Um, he had a guy named Steve Brines that would send Sam lyrics fully written songs, choruses, everything intact. We didn't ever change a word. And then Sam would come up with chords and melody and we'd learn them. Wow. And, uh, when did, when did the change happen, uh, with the new players, with the Bela and, and, uh, that whole, you know, new sound or that, as we know of, of new grass revival now. Well, what happened there was in 1978, <clears throat> through just um, pure serendipity, <clears throat> we were playing in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and Leon Russell was 
living there. He had just gotten divorced, and we had moved back from Los Angeles to Tulsa. And he ended up, through a strange set of circumstances, coming in with his friend Emily Smith, who he wrote the song Sweet Emily about. Mm-hmm. Like, they were driving down the street, the street, and Emily's like, look, Leon, the Newgrass boys are playing at blah, 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 blah. And he's like, well, let's go see him. So he came to the sound check. <clears throat> and we did our show, and after the show, he invited us back to his house, and we sat up and played music all night, just the four of us plus him. Yeah. Oh, and he had a percussion player uh, named Ambrose Campbell from Nigeria. Yeah. And the next day, he was like, you boys want to go on the road with me? We're like, sure. <laughs> You're Leon Russell. <laughs> What the hell not? <laughs> so that started <clears throat> three years of our tenure as his band. And we were literally, the way the show went was Newgrass Revive would go out and play for a half hour. People would boo through that whole time. Yeah. Literally. <laughs> <laughs> and then Leon would, we'd take a short break and then Leon would come out and we'd play another 90 minutes with him. Yeah. With just Ambrose on percussion. Sam on fiddle and mandolin, me on electric bass, Curtis on dobro and acoustic guitar, and Courtney on banjo. That was the band. Wow. And we did that for almost three years. And what happened was is that Leon kept cutting our stage time. And he also was going through a horrible divorce. So he just wanted to, he bought a big old motorhome. And he just wanted to stay on the road all the time. I bet we were doing 250 shows a year, wow. just nonstop, just grind, 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 grind. But we were young, yeah. and we are playing with Leon. We loved it. But two of the guys near the end of our tenure with Leon, like we started the new band with Bela and Pat in 1981. Mm-hmm. But we worked, um, Sam and I worked, it, we hooked up with, with uh, Leon in 78, 79, 80. So, anyways, um, two of the guys wanted to leave the band. The band being Leon Russell and the New Grass Revival. Um, and they did. <clears throat> and at that point, Sam and I just decided, well, let's figure out how to make a new New Grass Revival. But in the meantime, let's just keep working with Leon and try to figure out what we're going to do next. And that's what happened. So yeah. the last year that we were with Leon, it was just Sam and I. The other two guys had gone. Yeah. And that's when we started searching for people to play. And we already all, all knew about Bela, yeah. Bela Fleck. And uh, in fact, Sam had played on his first solo album or his second solo album. And we had met Pat Flynn, who was from California, um, at Telluride Bluegrass Festival. Oh, yeah. He was playing with Jimmy Ibbotson from the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. Yeah. So, sorry, it's taken so long to tell this story. No, it's great. <laughs> it's good. Um, so that's how we met. That's how we, you know, reformed the band. And so we finally, Sam and I finally left Leon's band in 81, or late 80, that's what it was. Yeah. It was like in the fall of 1980. And then we went to my mom's house for literally, I think, a month. 
my dad had passed away in 74. So, or yeah, he had passed away yeah. literally. Yeah. Anyway, so we, we went to my mother's house and we rehearsed, we stayed at her house and Pat and Bela and Sam and I rehearsed there for what I think was a month or six weeks. Wow. And then we had our first gig in Nashville and Leon was there and Roy Acuff was there. Wow. <laughs> it was really strange, strange night. Um, John Harper was there, our friend, and that was the beginning of, of that part of the band. Yeah, that version of the band with Bela Fleck and Pat Flynn. So, where did record success start to happen for Newgrass? Really, not till the last yeah. record that we made, which is called Friday Night in America. Yeah, because um, along the way. You know, the first record we made was for Sugar Hill, and that's called On the Boulevard. And that's the record that still, to me, that and our live in Toulouse, France record, those are the two records that sound like we sounded live, oh, yeah. even though one was a studio album. Because once we got on Capitol Records, we felt like, well, you know, we need to use drums, and we need to be thinking about commerciality, and... You know, we have responsible responsibility there, you know, Capitol Records is supporting us financially, et cetera. Yeah. So let's try to get on the radio. And uh, to be honest, that was the undoing of the band. Oh, yeah. Once we got signed to a major label, because that band was not built for that. Yeah. That band was built for what it was, which is highly artistic, um, a, a lot of improvisation in our music. Yeah. Um, but I have to say to Capitol Records credit, I mean, we still put instrumental on our last record. There's a 14 minute instrumental on there that Bela wrote called Bigfoot and Capitol never came to us and said, you can't do that. Oh yeah. They just said, try to find a way to be who you are and get on the radio. So, so that must've been different. I mean, obviously it gave you more success and, and people we got built, to know Actually, we built our audience one person at a time. And, and I was in the band for 15 years, almost 16. And Sam was in the band for 17 or 18 years. So, I mean, we really, we were just, we were road dogs. Yeah. And we're not talking about guys traveling in buses with crew guys to deal with their equipment. We're talking about, you know, six or eight people in two vans. Yeah. So there you have it. Yeah. The good times. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, we, we made our audience, you know, out of the realm of radio. Yeah. There wasn't any radio for people like us. No. Yeah. There, and there really still isn't much. Um, you got satellite radio with some bluegrass on it, but besides that, um, I'm sure there's pockets throughout the States where um, there's a bit more available for airplay, but nowadays um, not as much still. It's funny the 15 plus years I was in the band. We, uh, it's like we lived through, we watched the music culture and in terms of commerciality, just, it just came in waves, yeah. you know, it, there was disco and then there was new wave. And then there was, uh, Madonna and then there was the 80s music and you know we just kept doing our thing kind of I personally was just observing it going some of it I liked you know yeah. some of it was really good music but just it was like 
here's another wave washing over the top of us and we're not going anywhere, <laughs> which is probably a good thing. It's oh, like yeah. we, were, we were being pulled out to sea more than we were headed towards the, the shore. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's that same thing, right? Stay true to what you do and who you are. Um, and that's the best place to be. Yeah. So once, uh, yeah, I just feel so fortunate. Oh yeah. Go ahead. No, I once you found that, uh, new grass kind of disbanded and, uh, where'd you find yourself, uh, at that point? Oh man. So I'd grown up being a rock and roll guy, you know, playing rock and roll music. And I, I, you know, I loved bands like Free, Paul Rogers' first band with yeah. Andy Frazier, who was so amazing on the bass. And, um, you know, I love bands like Yes, and I love the Stones, and I love the Beatles, and I liked, um, you know, I liked Aerosmith, I liked Cream, I liked Led Zeppelin. So I was really a rock guy at heart. So I decided to, um, this would have been 1990, uh, pursue a uh, rock and roll career, you know. Yeah. I was um, 36 at the time. Um, anyway, so I got hooked up with this manager that used to be ZZ Top's accountant, and he went on to manage the Dixie Chicks, and he's, you know, a big, big guy, so to yeah. speak. Um, and I, we actually, he got me a deal on, on Atlantic records, but which was on the Atco label, which is a, you know, boutique part of the label. And so they sent me to Nashville and I hooked me up with all these people to write with. And I had a band and, and then it was kind of the wrong, kind of like that oops, wrong planet thing. Yeah. Um, because the next thing I know grunge hit. Oh yeah. (laughs) <laughs> so, you know, so I, at 36, I was a dinosaur. Yeah. Unlike today, that doesn't seem to be as big of a factor. Obviously there's the young, young guns, but they're still, they don't look at it. I, at that the same. Yeah. I mean, I, I loved a lot of it. I love yeah. Pearl Jam. I love Nirvana. You know, so many of those bands um, were just amazing. Chris Cornell, etc. Yeah. So, so I tried doing that. Yeah. And it didn't work out. <laughs> and then by another series of accidents, I ended up joining a band with Pat Simmons from the Doobies and Rusty Young from Poco and Bill Lloyd from Foster and Lloyd. Wow. And we did two records, one from Warner Brothers and one for RCA and that kind of takes us sort of up to the present, close to the present. Yeah. Were you, uh, at that time, were you living in Nashville then? Yes, I've never, I've lived here since 1980. From 80, okay, so you were there. And I've worked here since 70, 74. Yeah. Now you were doing, uh, when did you get involved with doing session work? I know you've played on a bunch of um, mm. people's albums and you sang on a bunch Um when did that really click in? 80s and 90s. Yeah. Because, you know, it's funny. Newgrass was, um, Nashville loved our band. Yeah. They just did. And we just, we were like critically, the critics loved us, the fans loved us. And so we, and we had a, 
pretty big presence. You know, we had two videos that were that came out when we were on Capitol, and they were, um, even though they didn't do that great at radio at that time, that you know, the video outlet was CMT, yeah, um, which is I guess like much music, um, and we did really really well on that. So we were we we had really uh, as a band and as individuals high visibility, and I was getting calls from all sorts of people to come sing on the record. Do you, do you enjoy doing that? Oh, I love it. Yeah. And it's, it, you know, for me, you know, I've wound up singing on people's records that I bought and used to sit in like a goober look at the covers of, it, yeah, yeah. you know. So that's happened to me a lot. That's pretty cool. And it continues to do so. Yeah. And what did the uh, move you started to perform with the Doobies? Um uh, now that was after the band uh, there. How did that kind of, I guess your affiliation uh, there just kind of got you, got you the bass part in with the doobies. Yeah. What happened was when Pat and, and uh, Rusty and Bill and I had our little band, which was eventually called the Sky Kings. Um, that band broke up. Yeah. Um, I've lost my train of thought again. I'm so sorry. No, getting together with the doobies. Oh, right. (laughs) So I played with them. Uh, Our band with Pat didn't, didn't really go anywhere and the doobies got reactivated. So, so they asked me to be based. If if they, they didn't have a bass player. Willie Weeks had gone on to play with Winona Judd and they got reactivated as a band. And do you want to come play bass and sing background? I was like, sure. So here we are. Awesome. That must have been a fun gig. And still is. I mean, you've, you're back playing with them again. Um, yeah, if, if we ever play it. <laughs> I know. Were you supposed to have a lot of dates this year? Oh, yeah. We were yeah. doing the 50th anniversary tour with Michael McDonald. Oh, geez. And he's he hasn't done a tour with the Doobie since the 80s. Yeah. So this was going to be a really big deal. And I think it still will. I don't know when it's going to happen. Everything is resting on COVID as usual. Yeah. Yeah, I always say the the big thing now is is once we get going again, it's not as if everybody can start from the start line all at once. Um, you know, it's just sort of like we got all these tours and all these people who want to get out playing, but can't all start at the same time because there's just not going to be enough people to uh, to make that happen. I mean, this it's going to I think it's going to be a little bit of slow ramp up to to where we were. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of people are saying now that <clears throat> they don't see big tours happening till um, 2022. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I, I think some people say the fall of next year, but I think maybe they'll get a few off the ground um, and see how it goes, and and then it will be the following following year, and that will be a big year too. I mean, you you figure all these people still waiting. Uh, it's yeah. going to be. Uh, a lot of people ain't anxious to get out there and do it. Some people will be in their 80s then, not yeah. me. No. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you find yourself uh, doing now What besides the, doing the, the Facebook uh, project? Uh, do you have anything coming up that you're uh, you well, yeah, going to start the new album in, in January? Yeah, we're going to do that. Um, it's just, you know, this, to be honest, I mean, 
this is um, for my wife and I, like we have never spent this much time together ever. Yeah. And that could have gone either way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it went really well. And it's still, it's still well. It's just, you know, it's just my, this is the first time, the first time in 46 years that I was home in summertime. Yeah. Like, wow. Yeah. So, and so we've just had a lot of moments of bliss and grace. Just the three of us being here. So do you um, find yourself really liking that? I mean, obviously you miss being on the road and doing that whole thing, but there's, I've known myself because, you know, obviously summertime's busy for all of us. It there's really kind of enjoyed hanging out at home and having that time. But um, maybe it's going to be finding that balance between the two. I don't know. I mean, I'm 67. Um, I'll be 68 in August, the end of August. I mean, if I was, if I was to be perfectly candid, candid here and, I would probably tell you, I wish I had enough money to retire because I would right now. Yeah. Because I've enjoyed this so much. I love playing music. I love making music. I love singing. Right now, the thought of getting in a bus and being home away from, from my home and my family is not very attractive, to be honest. Yeah. I think you have to watch what you say publicly. No, Somebody might I, go, Oh, fine. You're fired. <laughs> I think a lot of people are finding that, right? I, I hear that from a lot of people. They're, they're finding this thing that they've never had, had time to do before. And, and it's been really great. Um, well, we've all had to just slow down. And it, for me, it's caused, it's caused kind of this Zen existence that we all, I think we all strive for, which is, being mindful and peaceful um yeah. and it was kind of forced upon us and in some ways it's a blessing yeah that's I think what so. i think yeah i think hopefully that we'll all come through from this on the other side much better people and um just find something new i mean it's yes. it's i mean especially if our new administration actually gets to take office yeah yeah you never know it's been interesting week or two uh, we've been watching it quite a bit up here, so it's it's pretty interesting. Um, well, here's the good news for you guys. If, yeah. if can you hear me? Yep. The good news for you guys is if if Biden actually takes the presidency, you don't have to worry about everybody trying to move to Canada. I know, because <laughs> <laughs> there are lots of people who are, who are doing that. I know a lot of um, LA people. Um, we're you know, obviously getting out of LA and, and a bunch of them have moved to Canada or moved back to Canada. Um, it's interesting. I mean, it's interesting. This year is, I mean, we're going to remember this for a long, long time. It's not just COVID. It's just been everything that's been, been crazy. And, and uh, it's, you know, if you can find, like you said, that Zen place and not have, you know, any mental breakdowns and, and all that stuff. Cause a lot of people deal with that as well. And, um, I think that the younger generations will, will remember this in the way that we remember Vietnam and sure. Kennedy being shot and both Kennedys being shot and Martin Luther King being assassinated. I mean, I don't even know how we got through that as a country, to be honest, but somehow we did. And somehow I think we're going to get through this too. Yeah. Now, musically speaking, um, we'll wrap up on a couple more questions here. Um, okay. Would, would you find after this many years 
playing and touring all over the place. Is there anybody out there that you haven't had a chance to work with um, that's on your list and say, oh, I always wish I could have played with this person or sang with this person or um, recorded with this person? Is there anybody out there that kind of is on the top of your list? Well, that's it's such a fantasy. I mean, it, it depends on if you're talking to people that, that I could actually get to. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's different than you know Stevie Wonder. <laughs> well, so oh man, I don't know. You know, I and I'm not trying to blow up the question. I just honestly, I've it's a tough one. I've had so many experiences like that in my life that I just never, ever, ever dreamed were possible. Yeah. There's no way. You know, I was in a movie with Dolly Parton about 15 years ago, and, and I had a speaking part. Yeah. And this is a perfect example of that. So she's, she's about five foot two. I'm only five foot nine. And I'm not exaggerating. She was this close to my face. She was four inches from my face. And I'm looking down, and I've got this scene of dialogue with Dolly Parton, and I'm sitting there going, I'm in a fucking movie with Dolly Parton. I'm looking at Dolly Parton's face. Her face is six inches from my nose. This is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so I've had so many of those kind of instances in my life. I mean, being with the doobies, I, I bought their records and played their records when I was in college. Yeah. You know, um, a million of those things, you know, working with Roseanne Cash and Steve Earle and, and Delbert McClinton and people that, and Rodney Crowell and people that I just hold in such high regard. And, you know, I get to, collaborate with people like that it's like well unbelievable garth brooks i mean whatever i mean there's been so many of those instances in my life yeah and it it's cool with your voice um you know i can pick it out anywhere um a very distinct sound i think but it fits in in so many genres right it just kind of always finds a spot in there you you're such a vast array of music you you can fit yourself into that's that's pretty awesome because you usually find that you can't always make that crossover um especially if you're you know in the country world or a bluegrass world it's sort of being able to sing something else um, well there is there's really a learned art to that it's not just about me john callan the singer we're going to have him sing sing harmony to art said artists there is i mean and that's something you have to learn how to do which is you know, you have to learn how to phrase with people, how to listen to people, how to enunciate like them. Uh, you know, singing harmony is an art form. Yep. It really is. And it's something that you have to learn how to do through repetition. I mean, it's not, in other words, you just don't go in there and go, here I am, I'm John Cowan, I'm going to do my, here's my way. and Because that's, that's not harmony. Harmony involves like the word harmony, it requires harmony. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, one last question, and it's kind of uh, touring related. Um, okay. Another one of those kind of, if you had a chance, do you have any? Uh, I like to ask this question: Do you have any venues, places you haven't performed at that you said, "I always wish I could have performed at this venue"? I'm sure you. Oh, maybe Madison Square Garden or Carnegie Hall. Yeah. I mean, really, I've, I've been in so many amazing venues in my life. Same thing, pinch yourself moments. Like, really? Yeah. I'm here? You know? <laughs> if you had to choose playing at someplace like 
the Station Inn or playing a big amphitheater with the Doobies. Um, I know they're two different things, but if you really had to make a choice, what which one is, is suited for you? Well, we're talking about two different things mm-hmm. here because when I'm playing with the Doobies, I'm it's their music. Yeah. And I'm just a steward trying to hold up uh, all the amazing things that Tyran Porter created in their music. Um, and, um, and, and when I'm playing at the station and I'm playing my music, so it's, it's totally, it's so different. I don't choose one over the other. I just try to, to do the best job I can with each one. That's, I'm not trying to blow that question off, but that's the reality. Yeah. I don't like one better than the other, um, but they're completely different. different. And that's, and for me, that's a source of joy. I mean, I, you know, we went on a tour with Carlos Santana a couple of years ago, two summers ago now. He was an amazing guy. You know, it's like, and somebody in his band said to me, um, one of the crew guys, I think, he said, you know, one of the first things I learned here was when we get to the venue, Carlos doesn't say, how long do I have to play? He says, how long do I get to play? Oh, yeah. And he would, every night, he'd come and sit on the side of the stage for our sound checks. He'd come out every night. They had a chair for him. And I've never, and I've, I've toured with, for 40 some years with other artists. This is singularly, um, I've never seen this happen before. He's so involved and he likes music so much that he, he just wanted to, I don't know. I don't know what his motivation was for that behavior, but I find it to be highly spiritual and highly attractive. Yeah. And it made me feel, it made me feel worthwhile in a way Yeah, that, that he wanted to do that. And anyways, there's not a lot of people like him. Yeah. Unfortunately. No, that's true. What about, uh, we should, mention our good mutual friend, Mr. Craig Bignall, who's uh, actually was on one of my very early podcasts. Um, how, how did that story come about uh, you getting Craig uh, to perform with you? That is through my friend, my dear friend, John Gully, J.K. Gully. Yeah. Singer, songwriter, guitarist extraordinaire. Certainly is. Yeah. Um, that is how I met Craig, actually. Um, and I don't remember the course of events, but I remember when I met Craig, I was so astounded because A, he could sing like an angel. B, he could play drums like a mofo. Yeah. And C, he plays the banjo. And yeah. he plays yeah. really yeah. well. He does. Yeah. Which makes perfect sense to me because per, uh, banjo is a percussion instrument. Yeah. It's nothing else. So I was always astounded by him uh, what happened though unfortunately is after 911 and we 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 did a lot of research and spent a lot of money trying to get him visas and sometimes he'd get to the border and the US people would just say nah not today yeah he'd be like what here's my visa they go so what go home so we'd be in the states somewhere getting ready to play a big gig for or, or, you know, a decent amount of money, and I'd get a phone call that says Craig can't be here. So that ultimately, we just had to part ways because of that. Yeah, and it was because of U.S. customs. It wasn't the yeah. Canadian people. Yeah, Craig has this special gift of he's he's an awesome drummer, stick wise and everything. But you put a pair of plastics in his hands, um, 
and there's nobody I know that can play like he does uh, with with the set of plastic. He just has that touch with those sticks that it's wonderful. And he, he always is a guy who I always find who just doesn't come and lay it down. You play around him. He likes to play around what everyone right. else is playing, mm-hmm. which is pretty neat. Truly gifted person. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it's been an, uh, an, say that again. Did I, is the band still called Pearl? Uh, no. Um, he used to, um, used to be pair that he was playing with. I'm sorry. That's right. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and he has a, uh, a band, um, with his wife, with right? his wife now. Yeah. And, uh, and it's the best thing I think that's ever happened to him. Um, cause now he's kind of a front guy. He is a front guy. And I seen him play, I was out West and had a day off and he was in town, uh, doing a show and you know how funny Craig is. And, and, uh, he just, you know, <laughs> that his humor is just unreal. Uh, and him as a front guy telling stories and being funny and being that dry sense of humor type of guy, it's wonderful. I mean, it's just, he, cause he's kind of shy, uh, but yet he's has these great lines and, and he plays crazy and, um, and his wife plays bass, stand up bass and sings. She sings like an angel too. So it's, it's a great, great combination and, and you'll have to see it one day. You'll, you'll love it. I hope I do. Yeah. Anyways, uh, it's been awesome having a chance to, to chat with you. And, uh, I know, uh, even through Craig, uh, how excited he was. I, I remember when he got, uh, the gig and was going down and, and driving down to Nashville all the time and wherever you were playing. And, um, he had nothing but just awesome things to say about you all the time. And I know Vassar would be playing with some of the gigs and, um, yeah. and it, yeah, it was, it was a wonderful time, but, uh, as I mentioned, a big, big, big fan, uh, I love everything you've done and, and I'm always excited to see anything new and I'm excited to see, uh, uh, the new album, uh, you can start working on it at the beginning of the year. That's going to be pretty cool. That's some awesome players. We're excited. Yeah. That's great. Well, thank you again for uh, spending this time and uh, hope one of these days uh, we'll get to meet up sometime. Thank you so much for your time, Darren, and your interest. I appreciate it. It's been great. Awesome. And I'm sorry about the uh, little Wi-Fi hiccups. Oh, it's all right. It's <laughs> all good. Yeah, we make it work. All Thanks, right, man. Have a great one. You too. God bless. Thanks. Thanks.